Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 33, Riddles Wrapped in Enigmas Like a Conundrum-Filled Euro, where we will be looking at Chapters 70 through 71 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of puzzle solving. Okie dokie, let's get some bookkeeping out of the way as fast as possible. Each week we will be examining a section of The Wise Man's Fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text and apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian for Numos of the Week. After that, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. This time, I think you're going to like it. And then we will share a recommended thing of the week. And I think I know what you're going to recommend. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Although, just to stir the pot a little bit and the rumor mill and all that junk, if advanced reader copies are a thing, and if we can get our hands on one, we would totally be down for that. Just saying. Mischievous. Then again, I really actually don't believe any of the rumors, so <laughs> not that we'd be noticed anyway. It's like, senpai, notice me. And back to our little explanation. We naturally assume that either A, you've already read the main books of the King Killer Chronicle, or spoilers just don't bother you, because why would you be listening to us talk about the middle of the wise man's sphere if you cared about spoilers and hadn't read it yet? Uh. Needless to say, beyond this point, there are spoilers. Also, a word to our community, please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. Don't kick anyone in the slushy. All right, thank you for that. And so now it's time for the 45 second recap. The loser is going to be eating raspberries, so... Uh, what you're saying is you would like to be the loser. I would like you to be the loser so that I can buy raspberries. Nothing is preventing you from buying raspberries. But I would love for you to eat them. I would love for me not to. Well, then you'd better recap today's events in under 45 seconds. So are you ready? As ready as I'll ever be. In three, two, one. Quoth and Denna sneak into the mayor's gardens on a nearly moonless night. Denna hits Quoth over the head with the obvious bat and practically begs him to put his arm around her. Maybe he would have if the mayor and Maloin hadn't almost caught them whilst on a romantic stroll themselves. Private jokes and chickening out follow. And the trio in the inn are interrupted when a local politician comes to make use of chronicler's services. Quoth takes Bast upstairs to his rooms for a lesson and asks Bast to open his chest which turns out to be next to impossible, much to the pair's disappointment. 31.8 seconds. Yay! <sighs> no raspberries, sadly. Yes, but I have lots and lots of cherries because they are in season. Isn't it nice that I get those for you then? It really is. Thank you for going to the grocery store without me. You're welcome. All right. So let's go ahead and dive in, shall we? Yes. So we start off with Chapter 70, Clinging. This is really just a two-hander, primarily between Quoth and Denna, with a little cameo from Mayor Alvaron and Melo and Lackless. One of the things that really stands out to me is relationships are like songs, which means that they're composed of patterns, riffs. But riffs, as any songwriter will tell you, are not songs. 
Just because you can play a riff doesn't mean that you can play the song. And right now, Foth knows one of the riffs to the relationship with Denna, and he plays it well, but he doesn't know how to deepen it, to add complexity, to do something different, to shake things up. To improvise. Exactly. So he keeps doing the same riff, this whole being a total, quote, gentleman, being super considerate, and almost overthinking? Almost? Yeah, you're right. Just completely overthinking. (laughs) And he is so concerned with his version of her in his head that he doesn't give the real her a chance to actually express what she really wants. He just keeps playing the same riff over and over again. Which is really sad for a musician. Yeah. And it's why their relationship has a hard time really moving beyond these pleasant flirtations. He doesn't know when she actually does want him to be a little more forthright. It's not like she's hiding it. All of the signs are here. I'm going to admit that I would have absolutely no idea how to flirt in a way that would actually get anywhere. Because I think at this point, my flirting style would be send a lot of funny memes. Online world is a little bit different. I mean, I'm glad that we didn't have to dance around it too much because I think both of us are quite awkward and trying to express to one another that we actually like each other that way would have been terrifying in person, I think. We mostly did it over text initially. Yeah. And we both told each other that we weren't interested in a relationship right now. Yeah. And that was totally a lie for both of us. I don't think it was a lie when we said it. It just ceased to be true once we actually spent time together. Accurate. (laughs) There's some more talk about how Master Ash has like weirdsies, like concerning red flags that if both were just a little bit more bold, he might be able to articulate why he doesn't like what's going on. I don't think that it would actually help the situation, as in I don't think it would stop Denna from pursuing this. In fact, I think that she'd just dig her heels in further. So he lets it go, but that's not helping either. So right now, Denna would probably love it if Foth were at least a little more bold with her in sharing about himself, about his past. And that might be how she would be able to escape from Master Ash if Foth were able to open up to her more. But right now, I don't think she wants to escape from Master Ash. Not particularly. And Foth's instincts to respect her agency are very wonderful, right? I don't want to diminish that. Like, she absolutely loves that he respects her boundaries and her autonomy. And I think that's very important. But I don't think that she really loves the fact that he's so cautious. Right. She wants him to show a little more initiative. And, you know, he is always like, well, if I ask her questions, she's just going to run away. Or if I try and reveal something about myself, she's just going to run away. If I'm vulnerable around her, she's just going to run away. If I tell her what really is driving me, she's going to run away. I got to say, though, if the person you are pursuing runs away when you show vulnerability, 
that wasn't ever going to be a good relationship. You know, I think there is definitely a real sense that Denna is giving Quoth openings to one, ask about her. She is giving him openings to really give herself license to be vulnerable as well. And Quoth is so afraid of taking a risk here. Like this goes beyond even agency. He is not actually respecting what she really wants, which is something deeper. On the flip side, though, she's not asking questions that would lead to getting anything deeper from him. She's making overtures. And you get the sense that had maybe that moment with Meloin and Alvaron not occurred, perhaps that could have led to some of those. But Quoth is a little relieved that he doesn't have to go into any of that. So other things that I find interesting in this section, Denna is blindly going along with Quoth's plans for the evening while still putting up pretend roadblocks, teasing him about the way that they're going to get into Mayor Alvaron's gardens. And Quoth is just playing into it being charming and lovely. It would be cute if it weren't frustrating. And even though at this time of night, the gardens should have a couple lovers strolling around, enjoying the scenery, hiding from everybody, seeking a thrill of first of May outdoor sex. Uh, <laughs> there's no one. And Quoth can't be bothered to figure out why. Yeah, I mean, this is why when the president decides he wants to go grocery shopping or wherever, they clear the entire place out. So Meloin being taken out on a date to the gardens by Mayor Alvaron. The gardens have been cleared of people. Mayor Alvaron also not so bold. He doesn't want word to get around, even though it's probably obvious by now. I think it's a little more than just not wanting people to know. I think it's also wanting to have privacy so that he can actually talk to her and give her a chance to know him in a vulnerable setting without having to worry about hangers-on and lackeys and court gossip about what was said, what wasn't said, all of that stuff. That's perfectly fair. So at my college, when I've tried to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with any of the popular teachers, any of them. It is impossible. Even as an alumni coming back to go and talk to people, you will not have a full conversation. You will have a very truncated, interrupted, constantly, depending on how bold the student is, either coming up and interrupting you or just standing back and waiting and making you feel super awkward. Yep. I can't blame him for wanting to have the place to himself. And I think there's also the fact that, remember, Mayor Alvron has just gotten out of someone taking a shot on him, trying to end his life. He doesn't want a situation where there could be an assassin in the garden waiting for him. Fair enough. There's some other cute bits and inside jokes that happen. Callbacks to both asking what flower would Denna actually want, considering that roses are so cliche, and getting a chance to show her the Celis flowers that he at one point said she reminded him of. And then Alvaron, 
doing the cliche thing with Meloin and saying, no, 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 none of these are worthy of you. For you, only roses. And you already know this about me. I do not want cut flowers, any cut flowers, even my favorite flower. I would not want that. I would want something that I could plant in the ground, something that I could help bees make the ecosystem better, help them come back a bit. Also, you know that my favorite flower would probably kill our cats, so no lilies in the house. So after a little bit of hiding and snickering and being silly with one another, Quoth says, would you like me to actually introduce you to the mayor? And Denna reacts with this, wait, what? You weren't lying? You actually do work for him? You aren't lying? What? We know that Kvothe is an unreliable narrator, and I'm kind of wondering how close to the truth he got in this section. Though, I think the way that he spins the tale makes enough sense where I don't think it's completely false. But then Kvothe asks, would you like to meet him? And she reacts with this almost horrified no. And I wonder if she knows him already. You know, I don't know. It's possible. I think also there's a little bit of... She's kind of enjoying the thrill of the illicit. The fact that they're doing something secret and special is kind of fun for her. And knowing that, oh, yeah, they literally could have just gone in the front door anytime takes away a little bit of the fun for her. I mean, she says as much. Like, remember, she's not dressed up in her finest right now. She's wearing a homespun peasant skirt. And... I kind of feel like if she were to meet the mayor, she would want to maybe be a little more dressed up. There is some power in matching your dress to the event or to the company. Yeah, I think there's a little of that. And despite all of that, I mean, she's a courtesan. She makes her living at court, oftentimes as a companion for other people. That means that if... People know her in this context other than as a figure at court. It's not in her interest. Maybe she doesn't know the mayor, but she also knows that there's a good chance she may have cause to run into him in her other life. And she doesn't want that complication. She could also be kind of a figment of both imagination. Not completely, because she has met other people, mostly his friends in Emre. And the people of the Aeolian. But, like, Kvothe could just be seeing things. Then we cut to an interlude. Chapter 71, The Thricelock Chest. The trio has been interrupted and the story has ground to a halt. I note here that Kvothe, or Coat, whichever one you want to say it is, seems to have a preternatural sense of hearing. He hears someone approaching so he knows he needs to concoct a cover. He could just have a hyper-awareness that is brought on by all of his past traumas. I mean, there is the hyper-awareness aspect, but his actual sense of hearing would have to be really good to hear someone walking up outside a closed door from a fairly well-insulated building. You are assuming, sir. We live in a modern house and I can hear everything that's outside. Modern houses aren't made that well. This is true. Especially this one. Anyway, let's go ahead and keep going. 
Yeah, you know, of course, he pulls out the deck of cards and makes like they've been playing cards the whole time. Prepared for every situation now, isn't he? A little bit. Really, all this means is that their story's been interrupted because the local mayor needs to have Chronicler take down something for a will or a document or something like that. Random plot. Enter here so that we can go do something else. So then we get to this lesson by puzzle, which is Bass' favorite kind. Okay, before we do that, there are a lot of rather suggestive things being said regarding taking Bast upstairs to Quoth's room. I caught those two. I'll take the boy upstairs. <laughs> yeah, I'll take the boy upstairs with me to give you some privacy. <laughs> to do what? To do what, Quoth? To do what? What does Reshi mean? So that means it's time for a lesson by puzzle. Bass' favorite kind. As opposed to lesson by reading. Bast isn't one for book learning. Kvoth presents Bast with this chest that we've seen referenced before. And asks, how would you open my chest if you had a mind to? Now, that could be taken literally. How would you open the chest that is in my room that is the thrice locked thing that is 400 pounds and I've probably completely lost my ability to ever get into it? Or how would you get into my chest as in the chest cavity? Or metaphorically, how would you get past some of my defenses? How would you get into my heart? That too. There's definitely multiple layers here. Although he says, assume I'm dead. So I think that kind of rules out some of those other readings. Probably, but there could still be a little bit of double entendre. I think the telling part here is I feel like Kvothe is not asking Bast as a test, but mostly as a way to figure it out himself. Kind of the way that Master Kilvin was trying to get Kvothe to help him make an ever-burning lamp. Yeah, that sort of sense that he's saying, no, this isn't a test. I'm legitimately curious. How would you? I need to know. Bast proceeds to bring out a comically large amount of tools and spells, and he whispers at it, and he tries to coerce it open. He mentions how there is no hinge on the chest, which probably means it slides open, because, of course, if there's no hinge, there's a different way to open it. Like, it shouldn't take you that much time to figure that out. It's also notable that it's a thrice-locked chest. Hey, remember the power of threes and everything, right? First of all, we have an iron lock, then there's a copper one, and then there's something else. We're not sure what. Probably a sympathy bond or something, if I had to guess. And we know that copper, for whatever reason, is resistant to true naming, which is why Master Elodin's cell at the rookery was lined with copper. So there's that element to it. We also know that it's pretty well going to be resistant to heat because Roa doesn't burn except at extremely high temperatures. Also, melting the lock would be an insane task to undertake, much less getting a 400-pound chest into a forge fire. Now, you could use sympathy, 
to try and create a sympathetic link between some other more close at hand object. But we know from our lessons in sympathy that getting something that hot and with that good of a connection is going to be tricky. That transference is going to have a problem. And you run the risk of damaging the thing that's actually inside the chest. Getting it open isn't enough. With sufficient force, you can open anything. I do note that here, Bass goes, oh, this isn't fair. And I really love Quoth's response here. Ah, you've deduced one of the great truths. Things seldom are fair. If things were fair, most problems would be a lot easier to solve, just in general. That's how problems become problems. They aren't fair. Life isn't fair, unfortunately. One thing I do note, Bast pulls out a hatchet, and the shape of its blade was vaguely reminiscent of a leaf. Makes me think of the sword tree in Edemre. I can see that. I also know that there's sort of a leaf blade shape that's common in certain like historical-ish sword techniques. Many of the swords that we see in Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy are leaf blades, which means that they have a slight curvature bulging out along the blade, which is supposed to give greater cutting power along that little bulge there. So for instance, the sword sting is a leaf blade. So in this case, this would be an axe that has a slight bowing to it. I think it's also perhaps meant to say this is somewhat elvish. Or at least from the Fae. Exactly. I can see where you're coming from. I'm not super convinced that the sword tree itself is native to this plane. That's possible as well. Mostly, though, the image that I get here is kind of feels like Bast is playing Wily e. Coyote a little bit. <laughs> Like <laughs> just a comically large collection of gadgets, most of them probably from the Acme Corporation. I got that too. You know, and he ends up just going to town at it with an axe and nothing, of course. You know, It's like Gimli trying to break the ring. Little bit. I halfway expect him to like roll out a bunch of TNT with a big plunger and everything. He dramatically pushes it down and then we have the big explosion and then nothing. And at the end of everything, when the chest itself is pretty much unscathed, both Bast and Coat, Quoth, whatever, appear to be quite disappointed that there wasn't a way to open it. One of the things that I actually thought was really useful here is that Bast says, you know, I don't know anything else right now. I need some more time to think on it. And I think that's actually probably the wisest thing he could say at this point. He doesn't say it can't be opened. He just says, I don't know how to open this yet. I need some time to think on it. I need some time to do some problem solving because let's be real in life. Seldom are answers simple that you can just figure out in one sitting. A lot of times you have tough problems that require extra time and consideration. And it's okay to say, I don't know right now. That doesn't have to mean that you'll never know or that it's impossible. You're just saying, I don't know yet. I like at the end, though, where Quoth says it was a good attempt best. And he's very reassuring because it's not like Quoth is sitting here knowing the answer. Quoth doesn't know the answer of how to get into this thing. He's genuinely disappointed that no one's been able to get into it 
or has any idea of how to get into it. And that includes himself. There's one last little bit here that I want to talk about before we move forward. And that's where Bast knocks a crumpled up ball of paper off the desk. And before he can reach down to pick it up, Foth just says, leave it. Don't touch it. What do you think that is? More than likely, that's meant to make us think it's Quoth's memoir as written by Quoth. It could be that. It also could be different than what he's telling Chronicler. Or it could be near the end, which is to say, leave spoilers alone. It could also be a letter that he's written to someone he cares about that maybe admits certain things that he's not ready for the rest of the world to know. It could also be the answer to how to get into the chest and somehow there is a mental block inside of Quoth. It could be any one of these things. We probably won't know until the Doors of Stone comes out, whenever that might be. If we ever find out in that book anyway. Anyway, I think we're in a good spot to move over to our Fernemo section. You had a challenging set of chapters for this. Yeah, I mean, we didn't have a whole lot of options. Obviously, there's Quoth, who's always a nope. We had Denna, also a nope. Then we had Alvaron, who's really more of a cameo than anything else. He's just kind of walking by. And he's not very wise. He uses the same tired playbook that so many people do and say, would you like more roses? To be fair, he's using the playbook that Quoth wrote for him, so... I don't know, though, that Quoth has gone over the finer details of don't just offer the same thing everyone else offers. You might think that everyone offers it because it's a good suggestion, but everyone offers it because it's a lazy suggestion. Or at least an easy one. So then uh, Meloin, kind of same as above. She's just a cameo here. She doesn't even really speak. Then there's Chronicler, who really is more of a bystander at this point. He's there taking notes. He has like one line and it's what? Yeah, not much to say about there. Mayor Lant is really just kind of an excuse to pause the action. And that really leaves us with Bast. Which I think is a good suggestion. I think so too. So first of all, he displays some pretty decent problem solving skills here. You know, he first does some careful observation. He tries all of the known procedures that he knows about. So first he tries a little bit of naming to see if he can do that. He tries a little bit of sympathy. He tries lock picking, even tries brute force with the ax. He suggests other options that he then rules out, but he at least verbalizes them. Yep, he thinks through the problem. And when he runs into the conclusion that he can't think of the answer right now, he is content to say, I need some more time to think on it. He doesn't treat it as, I have failed this test. He just says, I don't know right now. A lot of life's problems aren't things that you're going to get in one sitting. Sometimes you're going to have to take a break and come back to it. And that's life. Even when the best practices don't yield what they want, there's going to be something else that's going to come to you when you least expect it. I can't fault him here. I think he's approaching it with the right level of determination and also knowing when to walk away for a bit. So, yeah, I'd say that's a bit of practical wisdom there from someone who's not known for wisdom. I think that we don't give Bast enough credit. That is fair. I think part of it is because he is so generally flippant and fun-loving. It's easy to 
mistake being unserious for being unskilled or unwise. So anyway, that's my Frenemos. I think that that was a great choice. Thank you. It was the only choice. <laughs> With that, it's your turn for an interesting fact of the week. What did you pick? So as everyone probably already knows, I watch a lot of science videos on YouTube, a lot of things from SciShow specifically. And there was one that caught my interest while we were on our interlude that I wanted to share their findings or their reporting of. Another thing that people will probably understand about me is that I find things like shipwrecks to be very fascinating. And it's not just for their historical significance, though I do enjoy a good what happened here story, like the story of the Endurance and the Shackleton expedition. But I also like learning about the environmental and ecological impacts of shipwrecks. For many inhabitants of the ocean or seafloor, a shipwreck can actually be both a blessing and a curse. On one hand, they can provide a refuge from fishing vessels that may otherwise overfish a specific species and bring them to the brink of extinction. They provide their own ecosystem, and researchers in the Mediterranean have found that there tends to be more biodiversity around shipwrecks than the surrounding area that doesn't have a shipwreck. Shipwrecks can also provide places where endangered fish, like the dusky groupers that are usually found around the Mediterranean, may be able to thrive and increase their population. But there are also some drawbacks. As many newer ships may have electrical systems that have transformers or other devices that can leak fluids that are harmful to surrounding areas and wildlife, or they may carry chemicals that poison the flora and the fauna around the wreck. And so, there have been some scientists and artists that have recently teamed up to make a new solution to help protect vulnerable fish populations in a safer and more sustainable way. Underwater art installations and museums. Interesting. Yeah. So in the Mediterranean off the coast of Tuscany, this takes the form of a sculpture garden called La Casa de Pesci, so the home of fish which uses fish-safe materials like marble. The sculptures are anchored to the seafloor, and they are specifically designed to thwart illegal fishing practices and provide shelter for the fish. As a bonus, art installations like this can double as tourist attractions. There are efforts to bring underwater museums like this to other places, like the Great Barrier Reef near Australia. And if you know anything about the Great Barrier Reef, you know that that whole section of the ocean is just in shambles with the coral dying off and the ecosystem basically in shreds and tatters and so i'm really hoping that not only these two that i've mentioned but others pop up and that they help to protect our planet's underwater inhabitants in the long term and allow their populations to thrive well you're right i thought that was pretty interesting that's pretty cool yeah, people can actually go and scuba dive down to see the underwater art. It's like being at the bottom of a fish tank. It'd be pretty fun. I also imagine that they design them in such a way that things like coral and kelp can actually grow off of these sculptures. So they'll end up evolving over time. So the version that you see now when it's just been planted is going to be different in 20, 25 years. I think that's really cool. Also... Tourist photos can go towards helping researchers 
track fish populations. Ah, cool. I like it. So with that, it's time for us to switch to the thing of the week. As you know, we're big fans of Neil Gaiman on this podcast. And for the past year or so, we've been using our Equinox Patreon episodes to explore the Sandman graphic novels. Naturally, when we heard that Neil was working on an adaptation of the series for Netflix, we're pretty excited. And the result is finally here. And friends, I'd say it's paid off. It was worth the wait. Neil wrote the screenplays and served as one of the executive producers, and you can see his fingerprints all over this adaptation. The show employs a deft touch, balancing narrative movement, surreal imagery, and well-constructed character studies to paint a complex tapestry of themes and stories, and above all, dreams. The cast is stellar, and each actor manages to find interesting ways to make these iconic characters into their own. A couple particular standouts that really get me are Kirby Hall Baptiste as Death. Which is just such perfect casting. I love her. When I first read The Sound of Her Wings back in the day, Death became one of my favorites almost instantly. And people who are encountering these stories for the first time in this show will feel the exact same thing I felt back then. Like, she is warm, she's funny, she's also practical and kind. Like, there is just this perfect balance of character and actor. She was born to play this role. She's great. I'd also like to call out Tom Sturridge, who really nails Morpheus's mercurial nature. He's melancholy and ethereal, and you couldn't imagine someone better fit for that when you read the comics. Like, he just slots in so perfectly. Absolutely true. I was blown away by the similarities. Apparently, once he auditioned, they all knew that there was no competition whatsoever for this role. It was his. Yeah, he just got it all absolutely right. He also brings a little bit of extra to this. A little bit of himself to the role. Occasionally, there's a little bit of arch amusement that you don't necessarily see in the comics that he carries through here, like a little knowing smile that he carries with himself. I think that just really fits the character so nicely. He's really good at portraying really constrained emotions. And I would say after having watched Calliope and The Dream of a Thousand Cats, which was super, super cute. But Calliope was one of my least favorite stories to read through in the comics. Like, it just made me feel dirty and gross to even experience that. And it is a testament to Neil Gaiman's skill and his growth that when it got brought to the Netflix adaptation as its own almost standalone thing, I still felt all the malice without feeling just dirty and disgusting for having witnessed the story play out, but it's no less impactful. I'd say part of it is that in the episode Calliope, they managed to point out that this entire system itself is where the exploitation lies, not just within any one specific act. The very fact that there are laws that constrain the muses and make them subservient in these specific conditions means that the laws themselves are unjust. And it's not something that the comics really question as much. 
But what I also appreciate is the emotion, again, constrained that Tom Sturridge brought as Dream in that story. He's a lot warmer in that story on the adaptation. And it's a melancholy warmth, too. There's that sadness, there's the regret, and there's also compassion mixed into all of that. I think it made for an amazing story that, again, I did not like the source material as much as I liked the adaptation of that one. There are some other ones where they're either just about even or the comic edges out or the Netflix adaptation edges out. But overall, I think that because this was Neil Gaiman's baby, it shows so well. And this and Good Omens have to be my favorite of the adaptations of his works. I'm with you. It's good stuff. So that, I believe it's time for us to share our seven words. I have the books this time, and because this was a Denna chapter, I was spoiled for choice. Right. Although I do note that there were more seven-word sentences between Quoth and Bast than there were really between Quoth and Denna. Yeah, got me there. But nonetheless, I had plenty of choices. So first I've got, I've got your note. Imagine my delight. Well, you've done it. You've surprised me. You treat me better than I deserve. Which I think is inaccurate. I think that she just doesn't see her worth. I would agree with that. I know exactly what he would think. Do you have any Red Grimsby in? It's hard to keep things in stock. Well, that one really... <laughs> I know, I noticed that too, especially right now with all of the supply chain issues. I feel that. Yeah. Then, of course, I'll take the boy upstairs with me. I'll give a shout when I'm finished. It's been ages since we've had lessons. Then, it's a little storybook, don't you think? Then, you'd best start getting used to it. What a useful lesson this has already been. And then, don't look at me, Bast, I'm dead. <laughs> and then my actual favorite here. Puns are worse than book lessons, Reshi. I kind of figured that that would be the one that you'd pick. Yeah, I think he's wrong, certainly. I love puns. But I also love the exasperation that other people feel at puns. The only other one I'd mention that you didn't was Bast's tone wrung a smile from Quoth. And I think that that's pretty sweet, especially if, again, we're friendship shippers in this house. If Reshi is just mentor, just mentor, or best friend, or something where there is a deep connection that doesn't have to be sexual, romantic, or sensual in nature. Although, knowing Bast, I think every relationship that he has is kind of sensual in nature. Don't know. But I do think that <laughs> puns are worse than book lessons, Reshi. <laughs> it's just the most perfect. I agree. So you had the words from life. What did you pick? All right. So behind the scenes, yesterday was our 10th wedding anniversary. And honestly, I can't imagine anyone I'd rather spend time with and spend my life with. You are an amazing partner. It doesn't mean that we don't have our ups and downs and it doesn't mean that we've never fought because we have had arguments, we have had fights, we have had our respective head weasels bark at each other. I think that you can't avoid that over 
12 years actually that we've been together. I don't think it's possible to have gone through lockdown with one person and not be a little bit barky at one another. It's true. But I can't imagine anyone else being as kind-hearted and understanding who accommodates my head weasels and lets me accommodate theirs and then we work together in such a way that we win against them. You don't react with anger very often. You react with curiosity and compassion a lot. And even when we are limited on things like money or time or the ability to just travel to other places or to other family or to other anything, you haven't lost your sense of adventure. You make things like, let's go take a drive around Northwest Oregon into a let's go and explore. And so my seven words are, here's to 10 more years of adventures. Well, I can't think of anyone that I'd rather have by my side through all of these. I love you. I love you too. And now we have made the audience vomit. Hope you all had a bucket. Got to keep big bucket in business, guys. They're too big to fail. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapters 72 and 73 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of A Fly in the Ointment. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination. Courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get things like special bonus episodes that are all about Neil Kamen's The Sandman. We just recorded Seasons of Mist. I don't have a concept right now of whether that's going to come out in a week or two or if it already did because my brain is kind of shot. I apologize, but it's somewhere nearby. It's going to be on the Equinox, whether that's in the past or in the future. And before my tongue gets too tied, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. Except we both know that with your skill in gardening, even if you planted it, it would be dead anyway. That's really mean. You don't actually know that. Fair. You, you really honestly don't know that. And we're going to cut that out. That's fair. Because that was mean. Oh, well. I haven't had a chance to actually garden. Okay. That was mean. I'm sorry. It's very mean. You don't know that. Wait until you know I kill flowers. <laughs> <laughs> Consider it cut. <laughs>